listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today we're delighted to speak to Jackie McLennan and Lou O'Neill from White and Case. Jackie works out of Brussels and London, but we spoke to both of them from New York City, where Lou is based and where Jackie was visiting. We discuss their roles in leadership of the firm's pro bono practice, their amazing team, global pro bono, areas of strategic focus and impact, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Jackie, Lou, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting us. Great to be here. We're excited to speak with you both. Let's jump right in. For starters, could you each tell us about your backgrounds? In other words, tell us a little bit about each of you. My own background is very simple to explain. I come from a small town in the north of Scotland, and I moved to Edinburgh to do my law studies. Edinburgh had a huge influence on my career as a lawyer. Um, My career took me from Edinburgh University to decide after agonizing about the possibility of an academic career into training with a very traditional but very good Scots law firm. And then I decided to move to Brussels, uh, where I had a wonderful opportunity to work with the legal service of the European Commission. And I stayed there for a while, and then the Scottish Law Society said I had to go back if I really wanted to qualify. But I had already decided that my career lay in European law in Brussels. So I went back to Brussels, and I worked in a very small boutique practice specializing in EU law and had many years of enormous fun. Um, And then... Uh, that practice decided, and I was quite an important influence in that decision, to become part of White and Case. So lo and behold, in 1998, I became a partner in a very well-renowned global law firm. I grew up in New York City, and in fact, I'm sitting on the 48th floor of our building and looking east to the neighborhood I grew up in, in Queens. I can almost see it from here. I went to a college in California at Stanford. And then I spent a number of years in Russia. Uh, I had a a Fulbright scholarship to Moscow State University, and I worked there for some years. And then I went to law school after that at Harvard. And the reason I went to law school, in fact, one main reason was that I had seen the contrast between the the Russian system and challenges in rule of law and the Western system, how things pretty much worked well. And I had to learn more about that. I was intrigued to learn more about why these different systems of politics and economy could, could make such a difference in people's lives. And that's why I went to law school. So, Jackie, before we leave you, why did you decide to go to law school and become a lawyer? <laughs> um, well, law school is different when you grow up in the UK because you choose to go to law school at the age of 17 or 18. So you probably don't have any experience and you probably have much less sophistication than clearly eluded um, when he decided to go to law school. In my case, I did not have a burning desire to be a lawyer. And in fact, even, even in the, 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 the 1960s when I went to school, uh, there were very few lawyers um, around who were women. And in my family, it was considered that medicine was an appropriate career for a woman, but law was something pretty novel. 
So it wasn't something that I thought was definitely for me. I, in fact, um, dabbled with the idea of going to drama school and then thought, well, actually, that's pretty tough, making a living as an actor. Um, and I developed a real interest in journalism in school. And I then had this notion that I was going to be this amazing investigative journalist making the headlines by infiltrating secret societies and bringing the truth to the people. Um, and I realized that law was this secret body of knowledge that one small group of people had. And I thought, well, actually, that might be pretty useful to learn how to penetrate that. And that's really what took me to make the decision to go to study law. Well, I have to add to that that I also never planned to go to law school, never planned to even go to grad school. I had no burning desire to be a lawyer, no lawyers in my family or in my acquaintances growing up. Um, and I, I, in fact, kind of applied late, took the LSAT late, I wrote an essay that was twice as long as they, the word count because I had something to say about my experiences in Russia. And if I hadn't gotten into law school, I would have gone to be a – I had also applied at the time to be a professional interpreter because I'm into languages. And I'd also applied to design school, the School of uh, Design and Architecture. So I would have had a different path entirely if I hadn't gotten into law school. But it was a good path, the right choice, uh, and it's made my life much, much richer. Well, I would make, I would agree with that completely. In fact, a, a professor of my, my Russian professor in college said, you know, you can go to be a, an interpreter, but then you'll be interpreting other people. Better if you're interpreted by others. And I thought that was very good advice, and, and off I went to law school. Great advice and fascinating backgrounds. We heard a little bit from Jackie about how she got to White & Case. Lou, how did you get to the firm? I always knew I wanted to work at White & Case, and that's because, again, this, this Eastern European-Russia connection. When I was in law school and, and, and then in, in, uh, right afterwards, White & Case was really doing interesting stuff in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And I thought I would come to White and & Case and do a couple of years in New York and then go to Moscow and be a corporate lawyer in Moscow. And that was my, my plan at the time. But I was always attracted by the firm's international uh, spirit and the kind of people it attracts and the, the cross-border work and the languages and all that. I, I, was just, I always knew it was the right place for me. And it was nice to have that certainty about the firm. Before we deep dive into pro bono, could you give us a quick 30,000-foot overview of the firm? What is White & Case? Okay. White & Case is the original global law firm. It was founded in 1901, so it's also a, a law firm with a very long history. Um, it's grown to be a firm which is active in 29 countries now, and I think there are 41 offices. We have around about 2,000 lawyers. Um, we're divided into 14 practice groups. One of these practice groups is the global pro bono practice, which is the practice that I head. And that practice group is run on exactly the same basis as the other 13, which is that it has a very clear structure. It has very clear goals. It is very accountable to the chair of the firm and the executive committee of the firm. And it operates in a way which is, uh, I would say, um, as business-oriented as the other practice groups. Um, and so the firm itself is very much in the mold of 
um, a traditional law firm which has a transactional practice. We've got an M&A practice group. We've got commercial litigation. We're very strong in international arbitration. The firm, in a sense, over the 70s and 80s particularly, was renowned um, for its project finance group, and that's still very much the backbone of the firm. But as I say, we have 14 different practice areas that, that we operate in. As a matter of some breaking news or current events, although it may be not as breaking when this episode airs, I know you had an amazing and special event last night. Could you tell us about it? Well, I'm delighted to tell you about it because we understand that it was, in fact, a historical event. It's not historical that um, there have been initiatives of the private sector to work with the UN, but it is um, historical that a meeting during UN General Assembly uh, and a registered event was held outside UN premises, and we were very delighted to host an event last night in our offices in New York where we invited um, representatives from the UN, representatives from sovereigns, representatives from the private sector to talk about how the private sector could work with the UN more and work more with sovereigns to foster and to advance SDG 16, which is basically the rule of law SDG. It is the SDG which aims to ensure um, peaceful and just and inclusive societies. And this is something which we believe is at the heart of the SDGs. And if we are to achieve the SDGs by 2030, we really have to achieve the goals of um, the SDG 16 and the rule of law. So this event was a fantastic opportunity to have people from many different sectors, many different civil society organizations talking in very concrete terms about what the private sector could do to help um, in this area. And we hope that some very clear examples will emerge where companies and law firms and other professional services providers will be able to work more with UN agencies to assist them in reporting on the advancement of the SDGs, to assist them in many different research projects in the area of the SDGs, and particularly to assist in um, developing a lot of the data that's required to see what's happening, ensure that the right momentum is being created, and do everything that can be done to achieve the SDGs by 2030. It's becoming more and more prevalent to our friends in the UN member states and in civil society that without the power and uh, fortitude of the private sector, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. And so this event brought them all together, all three groups together, and with different speakers and interventions, and then a chance to also uh, mix afterwards. And we saw some wonderful relationships already budding there, and we hope to continue this uh, in the future. Great. Thank you. We'll look forward to learning more and getting updates. So thank you for that. How did each of you come by your pro bono leadership positions? Are there stories there? 
Well, let me go first. Um, I think the story is probably quite predictable. Um, I've always been involved in pro bono work in the time that I've been at White and Case. Um, I've always been a fairly vociferous supporter of human rights and the need for the observance and the advancement of the rule of law. Um, I've been a member of Amnesty International for as long as I can remember, and I spent a lot of time trying to ensure that uh, education programs in Belgium um, reflected human rights training to a certain extent. Um, and so that has been very much part of me and part of what people would meet when they meet me. So I think that the that my background, in a sense, made me someone who was a good candidate to lead the pro bono practice in the sense that people would identify me as really believing that this is something that we should do as a firm. I also spent four years on the executive committee of White and & Case, and that's the the board which is made up of three individuals working with the chair of the firm, which develops the strategy of the firm and manages the firm. And so during my period on the executive committee, I really learned the firm in a way that you cannot do by being located in an office like Brussels and having a practice area which is specifically European law, European competition law. I, when I was on the executive committee, was responsible for Asia, and so I really did a deep dive and learned exactly what was going on in our offices there. But necessarily, I learned so much more about how the firm operates, and I learned so much about our different partners and what they do, that it was a wonderful experience that I could take with me into the global pro bono practice. And so I think that um, double aspect of my background made me someone who seemed to be a good leader and therefore I was asked by the firm chair to take on the leadership of the global pro bono practice. My route is an interesting one and more circuitous than Jackie's. I have spent three stints now at White & Case, this my longest by far. First I was a summer associate, then I left and I went back to law school and I deferred White & Case for you to work on legal reform in Russia with the Securities Committee, the, the, the SEC of Russia, basically, to write securities laws. And then I came to White & Case as an associate and worked several years uh, here and did a lot of pro bono, tremendous amount of pro bono, including a great deal of criminal appeals. And I left the firm to become a prosecutor, an organized crime and financial crimes prosecutor in New York. And then after that, became a diplomat for five years, uh, with my ultimate post being as the OSC ambassador to Moldova, a small country in Eastern Europe. This is all by way of background of saying I was then finishing up my ambassadorial work and was between jobs. And I got a call from the chairman of, uh, of the firm, Hugh Verrier, who said he had a very interesting project that he was looking at in Bhutan, which we'll talk about, I think, more later. And would I go out and scope out this country on what we might do on helping them build their first law school, create their first law school. And I did that in 2009 before we launched the global practice of pro bono uh, for three months. And upon the completion of that work, it was decided to create this, this global practice that Jackie mentioned. And I was asked to come back to the firm in uh, April of 2010 to help launch it. Fascinating background. Much more interesting than mine. 
both fascinating. So we, we heard about your own personal commitments, Amnesty International, doing your own pro bono work in a variety of areas. What do you think sparked each of your passion for pro bono and access to justice? I'll go first again. Um, it's a difficult one in one sense. I think that as soon as I entered law school, I was taught that pro bono, although we didn't kind of label it pro bono, but being um, a lawyer professionally required you to give some of your time to ensure that people who could not afford to pay lawyers still got legal representation. And so part of the psyche, part of the culture of the Scottish lawyer is that poor people deserve legal representation and that lawyers have a privileged position in society and should make some time available to ensure that that representation is given. And that's just part of something that I grew up with in my training. And in Edinburgh, every law student was encouraged to give time to assist in what was then called the legal dispensary. And that was uh, a clinic for the poor in Edinburgh to come and ask questions to try to get help with legal problems. It's now called something quite different because legal dispensary sounds rather old-fashioned, but it had been in existence from... I think the end of the 19th century, and interestingly, the legal dispensary was a way that women who could study law, who could get a law degree, but couldn't actually practice law, were able to use their skills and give advice. And so I worked with the legal dispensary um, in law school. And then when I was an, uh, well, uh, in the Scottish system, you can choose to do a four-year degree. In one of my courses as part of the honors part of the degree, I studied something called legal process. Now, that's a very strange title, but effectively, this was a course which was way ahead of its time because we're talking about the early 80s here. The course was taught by Professor Alan Patterson, who believed that it was essential for lawyers to understand that there were problems with the legal system, that the legal system was not able to be accessed by all in society, that the cost of law and going to the law was an increasing problem, and that there was a need to look at alternative dispute settlement mechanisms seriously in order to try to train people to resolve legal problems in ways which would enable more to access justice. And so my thesis as part of this course was on mediation, um, and that is something which has been a seminal influence on me throughout my career and something which I'm very thankful I was able to study. And it certainly was um, a course which opened my eyes at a very early point in my, well, in my studies and then my, my career to some of the issues that I think it would have taken me a great deal of time to identify all by myself, as it were. I've always had a feeling in my life and growing up in certain family circumstances and other things that there but for the grace of God go I. And giving back is a big part of recognizing that we're all vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life and things can go wrong. And if, you know, if everyone did a little bit, just a little bit, 
the world would be a very different place, and it doesn't take that much time to help other people. And then there's one experience that I had uh, that I think affects my work even to this day. As a prosecutor, we had big cases. We had organized crime cases and international cases with lots of money involved and white-collar stuff. But the cases where one person was whose life was being affected uh, had perhaps the most resonance with me. And I remember there was a, a mentally handicapped gentleman, probably 55 years old, who had been able to work. He worked as a janitor. He'd saved up a bunch of money, maybe for him quite a large sum, maybe $35,000 over the years for his retirement. And some distant relative had, had stolen it from him. And I think that's my favorite case as a prosecutor was to to find the people who stole his money, prosecute them, and get him some restitution for his retirement. And so it's those little cases that, that really affect people's lives that uh, stick with you and stay in your heart. What do you enjoy the most about leading the firm's pro bono program? Um, I guess that's a question for me. Um, I guess it's a very good feeling to know that every day I am doing something which is of enormous value. I feel personally it's a privilege to be able to orientate the practice and the firm in directions that I feel are particularly right for White & Case. So it's been um, a great sense of purpose to feel that um, in addition to ensuring that we are focused on making uh, sure that the access to justice prerogative of what we do is never forgotten, the sense that individuals need to have lawyers in situations where, where they require someone to represent their interests and they simply can't do that on their own and they have no other means of obtaining a lawyer uh, is something which um, law firms must always keep um, front of mind. But um, I think that the, the work that I've been able to do since I took on the leadership of the pro bono practice has been to um, focus particularly on developing cooperation with our clients. Um, I think there's a real recognition that in-house lawyers want to be able to do pro bono work, that they have um, a strong contribution to make in that area, and that partnering with law firms is one excellent way for that wish to be achieved. Um, and so that's something where um, we've we've been able to develop the focus that we've put on that and the work that we have done with a number of clients. And, and I'm very proud of some of the collaborations that have taken place there. I have also, I think that we identified that we in White & Case have a particular footprint. It's not every firm that has such broad reach in terms of the countries that we practice in, the jurisdictions that our lawyers are qualified in, um, the languages that our lawyers are able to speak. And so we've really tried to harness that multinational cross-border aspect of the firm in the projects that we have taken on. And I think that that's been um, something that I feel we've been able to develop in the last few years with real impact. So those are just some examples of um, the areas where I feel that um, I get a lot of enjoyment out of what I do. I'd like to pick up on that. What a pleasure to work with all these smart, enthusiastic, energized, dedicated people in the firm. 
and channel their efforts and their strengths and their abilities to helping other people and making the world a better place. So basically, we're, cu we're curating this wonderful uh, mosaic, I guess you could say, of all the work we do. And when you aggregate the 600-plus matters and the 100,000-plus hours a year and look at them through the, the various lenses that we do, you see a really amazing picture. And again, as Jackie said, to, to work internationally, to work across borders, to work across languages. And you know we're a global firm, and we give back now globally. All of our offices do pro bono. All 43 offices do pro bono in 29 countries and beyond. And it's, it's really something very special. I would like to circle back to something that Jackie mentioned uh, and dig a little deeper on, and that is that at White & Case, pro bono is one of its global practices. It's on par with commercial practices and leadership focus and management. And I'm curious, since this shift happened in 2010, what has this meant? How has this played out? Um, what has this meant for pro bono writ large at the firm? Um, I think that what, what, what has happened over the last seven years has been a really important move in how pro bono is viewed in the firm. I believe that many of our lawyers, particularly in the U.S. and also to a certain extent in the U.K., um, believed that pro bono was something that they should be doing. Um, they may have grown up, for example, in Belgium with the um, knowledge that doing some pro bono work was a professional requirement to be able to get your bar uh, registration. But in many of our offices, pro bono was not something which was part of the culture. Now, Lou just said, we have all of our offices worldwide participating in our pro bono work. That is a great achievement because for a number of these lawyers, it really was not something that they thought they should be doing or needed to be doing. And so by putting the, the pro bono practice on the same level as another global practice, we were able to have a platform and send messages to all of our lawyers in the firm in a way that they saw as being on a par with other practices. And so they, they began to visualize pro bono as something which moved from being, oh, a responsibility of the office and maybe a responsibility of some of the lawyers in the office, but not all of the office, or not the responsibility of their office at all, from being something which was the responsibility of the firm and something that the firm wanted them to do. And so our lawyers understood that the firm expects them to carry out a number of pro bono hours every year, irrespective of where they are, irrespective of what practice area they're in. And that transformed their view of pro bono. Uh, and another very important benefit of the practice is we have someone like Jackie, who just spoke so beautifully about uh, integrating our, our practice around the world, as our leader. And we, we now have a practice leader, a formal practice leader, who can set the tone and inspire and give us strategic guidance like Jackie does. We also, though, have uh, set up systematic policies, right? We've brought professional management to it, procedures. We've simplified our opening entry form so that it's like three minutes to try to open a new matter and get conflicts going, uh, reviewed. It, it reinforces our one firm, you know, White & Case is one firm around the world. And so getting our people working together on pro bono projects across borders, across offices, 
teams of 50 lawyers in seven offices or even, in one case, uh, 220 lawyers across 16 offices is really great. And we've integrated pro bono and our other aspects of our social responsibility initiative into those offices. So they reinforce uh, one another. For example, we had our World Cup. Just one case every year has a World Cup where all of our offices compete in volleyball and soccer for a weekend in September, and the office hosting it changes each year. It's great fun, uh, friendly competition, but we have integrated pro bono and volunteerism into that event as well. So everyone is seeing it both in the office and then in fun ways too. It's true, and and the the, the core of the White and Case World Cup weekend is that our people get together, they have a lot of fun, but they know that they're doing this for something which is for the good, and they raise a huge amount of money every year for a different charity. This year it was the Homeless World Cup. So you, Lou, Lou makes a, a very good point. I think that by having a global practice group, we can also encourage um, some of our lawyers who are would not otherwise be involved in pro bono to work with different people that they would never have a chance to get to know and certainly not have a chance to have a professional relationship with in any way. And that has huge benefits of integration in a global law firm. Um, and so I think that the the way that the practice has moved over the last seven years, um, if I'm not being too immodest, I, I would say it's really moved from strength to strength. Um, and, and, and I would probably point to the fact that we have external awards which attest to that. Um, and I think that the practice has moved from strength to strength because um, we have had enormous support from the chair of the firm, Hugh Verrier, um, and we've had a fantastic team, and we've had great support from many, many of our partners and other lawyers worldwide in the firm, which really would not have happened if we hadn't put the, the pro bono practice into the framework of global practices in the firm. And, you know, if we want to speak about impact, so helping doing a small part along with peer firms and other institutions to teach new jurisdictions what pro bono is and set them off doing pro bono in places where it hadn't been done before, that's really important. And it can change for the better those jurisdictions and people's lives in those places. Tell us about your pro bono leadership team. White and Case has a fantastic team working in the pro bono area. We have a practice which has pro bono as part of the social responsibility aspect of White and Case. And so that team is led by Joe Weiss. And within that team, um, we have Lou. He's going to talk um, a little bit about how he works with Patrick Rickerfor, who um, is responsible for taking all of the pro bono matters that are put through the system by all lawyers and interacting with all lawyers and making their life easy when it comes to taking on pro bono work. Um, we also have Elizabeth Black, who's in Washington, and Sophie Orr, who's in London. And we work fantastically well together. Our team is, I think, the poster child for teams who are in different places 
but who like to communicate with each other, who want to communicate with each other, and who work really well, despite the fact that we're not all in an area which is right beside each other. Um, the pro bono team that we have works with everyone in White and Case. I don't think there's another team in our firm where so many of our lawyers know by name the team members. Um, Lou and Elizabeth and Patrick um, and Joe, for that matter, and certainly Sophie in Europe, they go around different offices and they talk wherever they are to all of our people about the expectation that our firm has that our lawyers will do pro bono work and accord importance to the pro bono work that they do and that everyone in our firm will contribute to making the world better by volunteering in important areas. Um, I'm going to let Lou add to that, as I'm sure I've missed some important aspects too. Actually, that was very comprehensive, Jackie, but it's just great to have all the different perspectives. So Joe Weiss, our head of social responsibility, has a business background and a consulting background. Not a lawyer, but that brings a really great perspective on how to run things smoothly and how to have a strategic view of our practice. And Joe heads up the Social Responsibility Initiative, which includes pro bono and volunteerism and green and charitable contributions and legal education. And those five areas, we try to integrate them all. So we might, for example, help a pro bono client with also with volunteerism or include a pro bono client at the World Cup that we mentioned before. Patrick is the indispensable man. Without Patrick, all trains grind to a halt, and we just love working with Patrick. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how he keeps everything going, but he always does without fail. Um, and Patrick and I work very, very closely together. And then Elizabeth Black in Washington and Sophie Orr in London have multiple hats. Elizabeth is deep into legal education and has been instrumental in some of our great uh, and big legal education projects around the world. She also helps with pro bono in D.C. and volunteerism around the, the network. So many different hats for her. And Sophie as well is doing pro bono and volunteerism and all kinds of different initiatives uh, out of London. So uh, a lot of moving parts, a lot to keep track of. But uh, without this fantastic team, we couldn't do it. We are charter members of the team's fan club as well. You mentioned the outstanding communication that the team has. To what do you attribute that? This is a team which knows that it's dealing with really serious issues, but also knows that the way to get things done is to work hard and have fun while you're working hard. We had a retreat over this weekend which epitomized that. We brainstormed together. We were actually exhausted by the end of Saturday, but we came up with some great ideas. We had a lot of laughter and I think that it's an example for all teams in all aspects of whatever professional services area. Um, it's just a team which wants to communicate and a team which therefore does communicate. Thank you. Well, I'll be a modest and note that um, we have honored White and Case with our Pickering Award and agree, and I don't think it's false modesty, that uh, the firm is doing amazing and inspiring things. We've, we've used this term quite a bit, and I'm not sure uh, listeners will necessarily know what it means. And I know that Lou has taught and spoken about this quite a bit, but what is global pro bono? Help us understand what that means to you. Global pro bono is a, uh, it can be defined many ways, it, 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 but most simply it's 
people around the world doing pro bono, people in different jurisdictions where there may not be a history or a culture of it. Uh, is it an Anglo-Saxon invention? Maybe, but it was also an ancient Roman invention. So it's been around. It's just not maybe as prevalent in certain places. And some, some places already have uh, state-paid lawyers to do it, but there's always a need and there's always more that can be done. So that's the, the top-level definition. But then, you know, we consider global pro bono is both local matters in a jurisdiction, say in uh, Italy or in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia or in South Africa, local matters, or matters that are cross-office, cross-border that might involve a global research project for an NGO or for another group where 10, 20, 17 offices are involved to do that research and to provide a, a global uh, output, comparative research, comparative law, best practices. So there's two, there's really many ways to slice it, but those are two examples to, to start. Yeah, I would just add to that that it it fits very much with the approach in White and Case, which it sounds a bit trite, but it's think global and act local. And so we are giving the strategic guidance of focus is coming with a global perspective. But, you know, individuals like to work on something which they feel a close connection with. And so sometimes that is on something which they're, is kind of in their own backyard. So we understand that there's a real importance in getting a mix of projects for our lawyers and that some of the work they do will be very much focused on the pressing problems in their area. Um, and some of the work that they'll be fascinated to do will be a project, for example, for a UN agency on human trafficking worldwide. Uh, at the moment, sadly, there are so many projects um, which are of enormous importance in everyone's backyard that it's not hard to find projects that are local. And of course, um, with our global with our global focus and with our ability to cover so many jurisdictions, the cross-border research type projects really are something which we consider we're the kind of upper street, basically. So, Jackie, since you mentioned Think Global, Act Local, it reminds me of a T-shirt I have with that very slogan on it. I think it was for an Earth Day, which was the slogan, right? Sort of Think Global, Act Local, Recycle, sort of all of that. <laughs> so it jumps into my mind something that I have always been fascinated about, the work that the firm has done, which are debt for nature swaps. Could one of you explain what, what that work is and, and how that contributes to the world and the ecology and the environment and, and on and on economic development? Absolutely. So these are very popular projects that we've been doing for years now. The, there's a federal, <clears throat> U.S. federal law called the Federal Tropical Forest Conservation Act, and it's unfortunately now lapsed. So we hope it comes back and we can do more of these deals. But these are complicated corporate deals where a country that has indebtedness to the United States can have that indebtedness forgiven if the money is used to set up a national park or do preservation or education or hire rangers or docents or anything that advances environmental causes. And we've done $200 million worth of these deals in seven jurisdictions, including Indonesia, Costa Rica, Jamaica, Southeast Asia. And they're, they're pretty complicated. They're, they're on par with our commercial deals in terms of complication. There's seven or eight operative documents. There's local law questions. There's enforcement questions. There's a master agreement. There's the debt forgiveness part, the U.S. law part. They're, they're 
great uh, projects, and they lead to a, a really good result of having a nature preserve created or uh, environmental uh, centers set up or teaching uh, of children about environmental conservation uh, underway. We actually did, we've done these out of, out of New York, out of London, but we just did one, our last one before the law lapsed was out of, completely out of Japan. So a mix of U.S. qualified and other qualified lawyers working on a debt for nature swap, I think it was for Cambodia, and uh, preserving uh, or setting up a park for them for, uh, through forgiveness of U.S. debt. Thank you for sharing. I want to be totally open-ended here, and I, I hope you could give us more examples, examples of pro bono matters that have been meaningful to you, examples of pro bono matters that reflect the areas of strategic focus that you've identified for the global pro bono practice. Share the awesome work that you're doing. Okay. Um, let me let me go first there. Um, there's many, many examples of pro bono projects that we've been involved in in the firm and that I've been involved in personally that I feel make me feel basically very proud. Um, and that they're, they're very meaningful in terms of, of what I've been doing over the years in the firm. Um, one area that I particularly have valued is the, the work that we've done focusing on women's rights. Um, and that's probably because I feel very strongly that um, Hillary Clinton got it right when she said that um, women's rights really lie at the heart of ensuring recognition of human rights. And if we can get recognition of the need for putting women and girls at the heart of what we're doing, um, we will do better in the world because, as we all know, if you have women who are educated and girls who are educated and they can then enter into the workforce, um, good will flow in all sorts of directions. So I feel that the work that we've done for many years for various organizations who have been involved in um, ensuring that there is understanding of the law and implementation correctly of the law that exists and development of the law that sometimes doesn't exist in the area of reproductive rights is very key. Um, I'm also a great proponent of the work that we've done to help organizations in ensuring high standards of maternal health. We're working a lot at the moment in Brussels with groups who are dealing with migrants um, and particularly one group which is dealing with ensuring that um, the migrant population gets health care and particularly that um, maternal health is something which is ensured for groups that are marginalized and that includes migrant groups. Um, we've also been able to support um, organizations working with um, FGM, which I personally think is something which is very important. And um, I've been able to do a lot personally with an organization which is working to try to end fistula and the awful situation of women who have fistula after childbirth. One simple in one sense, operation that we have carried out is one which I think has enormous impact, and that is that we developed a toolkit for civil society organizations. 
um, it was something that we were able to do because of our experience of working in different areas and different jurisdictions with these organizations. And it's um, a toolkit which has enormous value and is able to be given to organizations no matter where they are and what they do. Um, and I know from personal experience the value that that has. And so that's something where a simple tool can really have great impact. It's hard to pick favorite matters because they're all like my babies, building them and developing the practice. But I'd like to answer this question in a functional way. So the global practice allows us to take a comprehensive approach to issues. I'll give an example. The anti-trafficking work that we do, it's not just a scattershot approach with one case here, one case there. We think through how we can have the most impact. We do that through tiers of work. So the first tier would be basic research and publication of useful information for actors in the field. So some years ago, we created a database of every case in the world ever brought under an anti-human trafficking statute together with the Office of Drugs and Crime of the UN and published that as a, a searchable internet-based uh, resource. That's the first level, getting the information out. The second level, we set up a hotline for trafficking victims in 10 countries and did all the legal uh, support to make that hotline work. And so if you're a victim in, in a traffic to country, you have a place to call and get help. And then the, the third level of that tier of comprehensive approach is the litigation and suing traffickers, trying to get reparations for victims. Uh, and these are often cross-border work, work that uh, play to our strengths. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. And then I've really enjoyed lately, we've been doing a lot of impact litigation on in New York on the rights of really the, the people with just the least support, uh, disabled homeless people, right, and been suing the city uh, for more protections and help for them. Or in Flint, Michigan, we're working uh, to uh, sue the jurisdictions there over the lead in the water that's affected young children's educational capacity. Or our debtors' prisons work in Ferguson, Missouri, where we are trying to stop the use of fines and fees uh, and penalties that start as civil uh, penalties and then through through non-payment become contempt, become criminal actions, and then put people in jail. It's you know a throwback to a, a bygone age and shouldn't be happening in today's America. And then, of course, just the global work is, is so fun to, to be able to think about how to build more pro bono in, in Russia or in the Middle East or uh, in, in Southeast Asia. It's great fun. But I will just take another moment to tell a story. I mentioned before that when I was a prosecutor, it was the cases that had the most personal impact and effect that touched me. And we have a case now that I've been working on personally where a very young child in New York City was had has speech apraxia. He couldn't speak. He had a problem with his neural pathways. And if he didn't speak by the age of six, those pathways would close and he would not be able to speak at all. The city didn't know what to do. They didn't have adequate classes for him and they left him without a, a, an educational program. So we had to sue on an emergency basis to try to get him that that support. We sued. This was now five years ago. We won, got him into a private school that could serve his needs. And we've been suing the city every year, basically since then, for the last five years to ensure he gets the education that he needs. Uh, that case is very close to my heart. Yeah, I think that there are many cases where you um, you feel that Whiten cases made a difference. But then you meet someone who has been at the receiving end of the 
pro bono assistance that so many of our lawyers have given. And you hear from them and you understand that some cases, research that was done by someone sitting in Brussels about laws which affect domestic workers in the Philippines actually have changed the life of so many women that you are so overcome with the sense of how important it is that our lawyers realize that they make a difference, that it's um, it's something which brings tears to your eyes. And I had that experience. I was teaching um, in Oxford, the Oxford Saeed's Business School, uh, on a platform with a woman who had achieved enormous change in the law in the Philippines and who spoke and who wept. And when I was standing on the platform beside her, she stopped her talk and she had on the slide two young girls where terrible things had happened to them. And she said, we have been able to make sure that... um, this will not happen in the same way as it was able to happen before. And she turned and hugged me and said, and that's because of all the work that White and Case did. And it was such an experience for me because it's obviously the case that when you stand in court and you see someone and you have a direct relationship with them and you hear from them about the difference that's made, that's something which is every lawyer's great privilege. But when it's something which involves so many lawyers from so many places, researching something which seems to be of much less direct impact, um, it's, it, it really, um, it really is it, it's seminal. It's, it's hugely influential. And if there's one thing that I can communicate to all of our lawyers, it is that the hours that they spend are never wasted because the projects that we are able to work on really do make a difference to those people who are at the receiving end of the time that our lawyers put in. One thing we're doing just to that point nowadays is really trying hard to follow up on the results of matters and get back to our people. So your research Mm -hmm. six months ago led to this result with these concrete people. And just have a closed feedback loop so people know what what their work meant. That's such a powerful message and such powerful examples. And I think the concept of the closed feedback loop is important, right? People need to understand that their work matters. And sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's more subtle. Sometimes it happens that same day and sometimes the dividends aren't paid for years. So it's an important message. Before I ask my final question, is there anything else that you want to share or tell us before we wind down? I just want to make sure you have that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would I, I would like to draw attention to one of the areas where we've been putting in a lot of energy and there's a great deal of enthusiasm and um we feel that the the time that our lawyers spend on these projects is gonna have dividends for many years to come. The projects that I'm thinking about are our legal education projects. Um, we began to work on legal education in one country of the world 
quite a long time ago now, I think 2008, and Lou was really the originator of the information that we were able to bring to bear on this, and this is Bhutan. And Lou and I just came back from Bhutan. We were there in the summer, and we experienced the opening of Bhutan's first law school. And White and Case, under the the very strong leadership of Hugh Verrier here, um, has been working with Bhutan in order to bring that project to fruition. And it's something which I don't think you would automatically um, associate a law firm with uh, making um, a commitment to spend time with an emerging democracy and develop in the way that's right for that country um, a law school. And so it's uh, it's, it's a project which has um, been um, in gestation for many years. It's a project which has involved many people in White and Case, uh, and it's a project which um, I think is something where we have been able to see um, a huge change in a country and feel very close to um, a, uh, an achievement which is of great importance. The law school's up. The students are learning. It's the first law school in the country. We have more women than men in the school, which is great. Uh, we believe this will be an important part of establishing or consolidating, I should say, the rule of law in Bhutan. And that, that reflects a choice we made when launching the global practice to have these three pillars we talked about before. The uh, access to justice is one, helping NGOs with a social or environmental mission is the other. But then the third is advancing the rule of law around the world and helping create good governance and good sovereign governance. And that, that third pillar, that third area of practice, leads to some really innovative opportunities around the world. Uh, Bhutan being a great example, some of our work with the UN, our legal ethics training in Ghana and Russia, another example. And we think we can really leave something behind through those, those rule of law projects. Thank you for that. Mindful of your time and your busy schedules, let's end with this. Who are your pro bono role models and why? Okay, I'm going to be very traditional here. I work with White & Case. White & Case is a long-established law firm. But interestingly, when White & Case was established in 1901, Duprat White did some amazing work, to, um, which was in the area of pro bono. Um, and even more resonant for me was the fact that George Case also was very focused on pro bono work. And he worked with the International Red Cross. And after the First World War, he did a great deal of work to establish the International Red Cross. And the International Red Cross was based in Paris. And White and Case decided in 1925 that it should open an office in Paris. And one of the reasons for that office was to serve the International Red Cross. So White and Case was a global law firm, and it was a global law firm because it needed to serve what it considered to be a very important client, which was a pro bono client. So the ethos of White and Case has been central to its growth as a law firm which is global and as a law firm which is focused on pro bono in terms of a central aspect of what it does. 
just to pick up on that, Mr. White and Mr. Case were also involved with the Palisades Park, which is a beautiful bi-state park, New York, New Jersey State Park, on the Hudson River, these cliffs overlooking Manhattan. And both of our founders were involved with um, saving that or creating the national park way back in the, in the 19-teens, I guess it was. I want to say uh, kind of a shout out to all of the lawyers in our firm and every firm who are so busy with their commercial work, but then still find time to do the amazing things we've talked about today. Those are my heroes, uh, you know, pushing beyond being tired and still finding energy for pro bono, helping other people when they just want to maybe take a rest. That mean, means a lot to me uh, and keeps me going, being the dedication that they give to pro bono. And I'd like to also talk about uh, Judge Lipman, the former uh, chief of our New York State uh, court system and chief judge of New York, who tirelessly promoted pro bono, tirelessly, and inspired a lot of people to, through talks and trying to change the practices and, and rules and bar rules to get people doing more and recognize the access to justice gap and really pushed it. And finally, got a shout out to our chairman, Hugh Verrier, with the vision to create a pro bono practice, a global practice. I think the first or one of the first ever, and to to stand by it. And you know, the 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 Bhutan project was is a huge project. Mm, absolutely, and he's the driving force behind that, and to have that vision, and and not just vision, but the fortitude to continue it. It took us many years, and we're still working with Bhutan, and school is up and running. Lou and Jackie, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I just have the strong sense that we've only scratched the surface, and I look forward to talking more about the firm's pro bono program on a future episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rena. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Jackie and Lou for joining us today and for your inspiring pro bono leadership. Lou mentioned the firm's pro bono work in Ferguson, Missouri, and if you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to check out our recent webinar, Ferguson Fines and Fees, which explored efforts to combat the criminalization of poverty and how pro bono lawyers can get involved. The program featured Sonia Murphy, Lou and Jackie's colleague from White and Case's DC office, who shared her experiences and was amazing, as were the three other expert speakers. You can find more information about the program, which is available on demand on the web at probonoinst.org backslash resources backslash webinars. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. Leave some stars, write some comments. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Hey listeners, we've gotten some great mail from you and we'd love even more. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.